Good morning. morning. It's good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming, being a part of our services here at Ivy Creek this morning. We are so glad that you are here. Um, This past week, my family and I began our uh, family Advent devotion times together, and in the process of doing that, we, we sort of tackled uh, one for what for me is one of the most amazing aspects of Christmas and of the gospel in general. Um, we, we began to discuss the concept of God's condescension. Now, when we use the word condescension, a lot of times in our English language, we, we talk about it in the negative sense. Uh, we, we talk about the patronizing attitude and, and sort of the behavior of someone who believes that they're better than someone else. Someone that, that kind of uh, believes that, that, that their ideas and their, their intelligence or whatever is superior to someone and, and, and they, they just sort of talk down to them. That's how condescension is sometimes used. But, but the word condescension can also rightly, uh, from a positive perspective, be used to describe how someone who is of a, of a high rank or, or dignity can actually lower themselves to another rank or dignity, in other words, to be able to communicate and, and to relate to someone uh, who is subordinate to them. And it was in that sense that my family and I were discussing condescension, specifically God's condescension in creating and relating to mankind. And it truly is an amazing concept to consider. In fact, Think about it from the perspective of the psalmist David, who wrote these words in Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4. He says, when I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? Literally, that you you even care about him. Think about it. David was a shepherd boy. He, he spent a lot of his life out on the fields watching, tending to sheep. And he would no doubt look up into the night sky that was, that was not invaded by artificial light. And so he was able to see with the naked eye what many of us cannot see. And that is the, just the, the countless stars that were shining up in that inky black sky that would have looked like just diamond shining on a black velvet backdrop. And it obviously amazed David that God who created all of that would take note of an insignificant shepherd boy out in the fields in an out-of-the-way place like Bethlehem. And the concept of, of God's condescension amazed David. And you and I should be no less amazed ourselves. In fact, since the invention of the telescope, we know that what David could not have known. We know that, that namely there are literally hundreds of billions of stars twinkling in the night sky. I've quoted him before, but in his book on prayer, actually, uh, Philip Yancey describes the vastness of the universe this way. He says, if the Milky Way galaxy were the size of the entire continent of North America, then our solar system would fit in a coffee cup. Think about that. Just try to get your head wrapped around that. Now, consider this, that the Milky Way is only one of perhaps 100 
billion such galaxies. 100 billion North American continents. How many coffee cups could that sustain? In fact, Yancey even goes on to say this, the universe is so expansive that it's estimated that a message sent at the speed of light from one edge to the other would take 15 billion years. My mind cannot comprehend such vastness as that. I just can't. In fact, the other night, it stretches my ability mentally. It doesn't take much to stretch my ability mentally, but that does it. And we were sitting there the other night, and we were talking about that, and Charlie looked at him and said, that hurts my head, Daddy. I said, it hurts mine too. But here's the thing that we can't miss. God created all that. By the very word of his power, he spoke it into existence. It was created out of nothing. Here's the, the real theological term that's thrown around. He, connect, he created it ex nihilo, out of nothing. And it was out there under the massive weight of the billions of galaxies that circled him overhead that David realized that as humans, we are little more than a mere pinch of dust scattered on the surface of a nondescript planet in the middle of a universe too massive to wrap our minds around. And in light of that, he asks, how can a God so majestic and so powerful, a God who created the cosmos and, and that's so massive and expansive that it defies mankind's ability to comprehend, how can God... How can he even notice someone and something as insignificant and inconsequential and unimportant as me? That's what I mean when I say that I'm amazed. I'm I'm just thrown off by the condescension of God. Now, I want you to know there are two errors that can immediately form in our minds when we think about this. Very easily, we we can... slide off into error. And the first way that that happens is that we can erroneously think, well, there's no way that I can be that important to God. I'm so microscopic. I'm so minuscule that my life certainly doesn't matter to God. My life and my existence is not important to him. That's error number one. Error number two goes the other route. It doesn't begin really by thinking too little of ourselves. It, It really thinks too little of God. In fact, this error really dismisses the thought of God as being too incredible to believe. That there's no way that there could be a benevolent and caring God who created a universe so massive. And yet, that God knows who I am. Such a concept must be just a product of fanciful imagination. That can't be true. There's got to be another way to explain things than that. That's the second error. I want to try to address both of those errors today, and then I also want us to reflect upon the Christmas story. So I have attempted to bite off, I think, in some ways, more than I can possibly chew today. But I do want us to consider those thoughts, and I want us to do it by examining the prologue to John's gospel, the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. So if you haven't already, please turn there with me into the gospel of John. And as I said, the prologue of John's gospel is, is really that. It's, it's, a, it's, it's verses that present themes to us that John lays out in those first 18 verses that he goes back and revisits over and over again throughout the rest of the writing of the gospel. 
And one of the themes that he talks about is straight out of the gate is Jesus. And he talks, and I think there's a very much a, a Christmas aspect of what we read here. And, and John tells the Christmas story in a very unique way. He, he doesn't mention Bethlehem. He doesn't mention a manger. He doesn't mention Mary and Joseph. He doesn't talk about angels. He doesn't talk about shepherds. And about this time you're going, well, what kind of Christmas story is that? Well, John MacArthur has noted that John presents us with the story behind the scenes. It's, it's the story that you couldn't know if you were standing there looking at a child and at his father and his mother. It's the story that you only get as a result of the revelation of God himself. This is Christmas from God's vantage point. And Richard Phillips, he states that John's account of the Christmas story is a theological explanation for Jesus coming into the world. And it is, in effect, a theology of Christmas. I like to think of it this way, as the title that I've given to my sermon this morning says, it is a story that relates to us the condescension of Christ at Christmas. So with that as an introduction, let's read the first 18 verses of John's gospel this morning. Hear the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for giving it to us. We thank You so much for the love that You have displayed to us in Christ. Now, I pray that in this hour that You give us right now, that we can have our minds open and our hearts in tune with You that we might really truly sense you speaking to us through the power of your word this morning. This is my prayer, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I want to be completely transparent and honest with you up front and let you know that, that um, we're only going to skim much of the depths of what I've just read to you today. In fact, John's gospel is one that, that it's commonly said that it is, a, it is a pool in which a child may wade and in which an elephant may swim. And so let me just tell you, we're going to be much more like children this morning. We're going to stay in this, the shallows in many respects, and we're going to wade a lot. 
but I do think there's some important descriptions about Jesus that we must not miss based upon what John has written here for us today. And I'm going to highlight them for you as we work our way through the text. There's six of them. The first one is just this. We see that Jesus is the eternal one. He is the eternal one. John's gospel opens magnificently by portraying the life of Christ in eternity before the world came to be. John's first words there are, in the beginning was the word. And those words were intended to echo. They were intended to remind us of the opening words of the book of Genesis, which also begins very similarly. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so John's purpose in writing that here and pulling that same idea forward is so that he could communicate very clearly to us that the beginning that he describes here in John chapter 1 verse 1 precedes the beginning that's described in Genesis 1-1. He's telling us that before there was a heavens and before there was an earth and before there were sun and moon and stars and before there was a massive universe in place and before there was day or night, before there was sea and dry land and before there were animals and before there was Adam and Eve, there was Jesus. There was, there was the Christ. There was the eternal word. Jesus is the eternal one. And let me point out that using the word word as a means of describing Jesus is also a way of pointing back to Genesis. It's a way of pointing back to the way that the world and the universe and everything we see around us came into existence. The Bible tells us in Genesis 1 that that light was formed and earth was created and sun, moon, and stars came into existence and the sea and the dry land were created. And all of that came about when God spoke it into existence. As the psalmist summarizes in Psalm 33, verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all of the hosts of them that by the breath of his mouth. It is when God spoke that things came. Clearly, John is showing us that Jesus is the word. He is the eternal one. He is the creating one. He is the agent of creation. In fact, that is what John reads. Iterates there in verse 3, he does it both positively and negatively. Positively, he states, all things were made through him. That's everything that was made came from the word when it was spoken. Negatively, he tells us this. Nothing was made, all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In other words, there was not a thing out there that you could find in the universe that was created apart from the creating agency of Jesus. Now, as I mentioned, we're only wading through the waters here. We're not diving as deeply as we could. There's so much more that could be said about these verses. But what we should not miss here is that John is telling us very clearly that Jesus is God. And as God, he is the eternal one. That leads us to the next point on the outline I want you to see today, and that is that Jesus is the revealed one. And we might even say it this way. He's the revealing one. He's both. Notice what John tells us again in verses 4 and 5. He says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Literally, the darkness did not overtake it. And John tells us that Jesus was and is life and that his life became the light of men. 
Now, that is by definition what revelation is. It's the way of revealing something that has heretofore been hidden or not been able to be seen. John MacArthur, he, he, he puts it this way. He says, in no way could we ever grasp or conceive of that transcendent eternal life of God apart from his light coming in to brighten the darkness. You see, when Jesus came, he revealed to the world the glories of the Father. And he did that by invading human darkness. As a result of the fall in Genesis 3, we know that all humanity was living in spiritual darkness. It, uh, completely ignorant about God, living in superstition with regard to him. So Jesus came to reveal God. In fact, Jesus said in John 14, verse 9, that whoever has seen me has seen the Father. J.M. Boyce, writes this, Jesus is revealed as the one who knows God the Father and who makes him known. Before Christ came into the world, the world was in darkness. The world did not know God, but Christ came and his light shone before men. And then men had light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is what the prophet Isaiah spoke of concerning Jesus in Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, excuse me, verse two. He said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light and those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death upon them, a light has shined. So Jesus is the eternal one. He is the revealed one. And that leads us to the third thing that we need to recognize about him. He is the promised one. He is the promised one. Notice what John writes in verses 6 through 8. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Now, it's important to note that John, the gospel writer, is not referring to himself when he says there was a man who came, his name was John. John, the gospel writer, is referring to another John who we know as John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a prophet of an Old Testament type prophet who came in that Old Testament prophet form about 400 years after the silent time had had ceased. There there had been no revelation from God to the people of Israel about the Messiah during those 400 silent years. John the Baptist comes on the scene as a prophet, but he's different from the prophets that came before him. The prophets who came before him came to say there is one who is coming. John the Baptist came on the scene to say he is here. The one who you have been told about. The one who the scriptures testified to. The one that all the other prophets have said was going to come. He has come and he is here. And he came to bear witness three times. It tells us in those verses that John's purpose, John the Baptist's purpose, was to bear witness and give testimony to the light of Jesus Christ. And so... What we recognize is that John, the gospel writer, tells us that Jesus is the promised one that all the Old Testament had said would come. Now, look down a couple of verses to verse 14, because for those of you who've been waiting for the Christmas emphasis, here it comes. John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. 
The glory is that the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, for, for quite a number of years, I don't know exactly how many. I've been here 11 and a half. I'm going to say about 10 years. I have been given, giving to you in your outline what I have dubbed to be my sermon in a sentence. Sometimes it's a run-on sentence. Sometimes it's a paragraph where the periods are replaced by commas. It's okay. <laughs> I've been given to you, though, a sermon in a sentence for about a decade. Here's what I want you to know. Here is Christmas in a sentence. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That summarizes Christmas right there. It summarizes the condescension of Christ at Christmas. You see, Jesus Christ is God of very God. He is the eternal one. He is the revealed one. He is the promised one. And as John 14, it's 1 verse 14 makes it clear, he is also, notice there on your outline, he is the glorious one. He is the glorious one. Verse 14 is perhaps one of the most incomprehensible yet wonderful statements in all the Bible. And what makes it so wonderful is that it tells us just how glorious Jesus is. It tells us that as the glorious Christ, as this one who is the eternal, revealed, promised, and glorious one, he came near. It's hard for us to wrap our mind. This is the condescension that I was talking about earlier. It tells us that the infinite became finite. It tells us that the invisible became tangible. It tells us that the transcendent became imminent, that that which was far off became near to us. It tells us that that which went beyond the reach of the human mind to be able to comprehend now could be witnessed within the realm of human life. That, my friend, is the condescension of Christ at Christmas. That's what John means when he says that the word dwelt among us. He, he tabernacled among us. He came, pitched his tent among us. I love, I love the way that Eugene Peterson has paraphrased this verse. He says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We must understand that the word became flesh. It's not in the sense that he ceased being what he was prior to that. Christ never ceased being God. Rather, by becoming flesh, he became what he had previously not been, namely a man. In other words, God became a man and took upon himself human nature. And John says, we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So, John has shown us who Jesus is. He's told us the Christmas story from a very theological perspective. He's described for us what all the condescension of Christ at Christmas involves. And he's shown us that Jesus is the eternal one and the revealed one and the promised one and the glorious one. Those are all objective truths about Jesus. But as I mentioned in my introduction, some hear this. Some hear this discussion about Jesus and about him being the word that caused everything to come into existence, and they simply cannot and will not believe it. They simply refuse to acknowledge that God would become a man. 
In fact, you may have noticed that we skipped over a few verses there. Look back with me at verses 10 and 11. John tells us that Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. John's theological discussion of the condescension of Christ at Christmas reminds us of another way that Jesus is described here. The fifth point there on your outline is just simply this. Jesus is the rejected one. He is the rejected one. Verse 10 summarizes the entire presence of Christ in the world during the 33 or so years that he lived and dwelled among his people. But the sad commentary is that the world did not recognize him. The world did not acknowledge him. They did not know him. Jesus condescended to come into the very world that he spoke into existence and created and the world, the people of the world wouldn't acknowledge him and wouldn't recognize him. That in itself is unspeakably tragic, but then verse 11 tells us even more pathetic news. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. The picture that John paints here is of a savior coming to his own people, knocking on the door for admission into the house and the people just refusing to let him in. People people who had the very word of God, had the words of the prophets that had told of his coming. Very specific things that were fulfilled in the life of Christ. And yet they would not open the door and they would not let him in. In fact, the testimony of the scriptures is they drove Jesus away from their door and they banished him from the earth all the way to death. And instead of welcoming him into their lives, they screamed out, crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. The prophet Isaiah had prophesied about this coming rejection of the Holy One in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Hear, O heavens, the, the, and give, er, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. The Son of God who who spoke creation into existence, became the son of man and came and dwelt among his creation. But the world did not know him. They did not recognize him and his own people did not receive him. In fact, they outright rejected him. Now that is one way to respond to Christ. In fact, there are many who respond to Christ in the exact same way. Though Christ has come to reveal all the glories of the Father to his creation, many remain willfully ignorant of him. In fact, John will say later in chapter 3, that to the horror of horrors is this, that men, women, boys, and girls everywhere will be condemned because even though Jesus the light has come into the world, they remain willfully ignorant of him because the light exposes the wickedness of their heart. And listen, the reality is folks, the reality is folks love their wickedness. 
They love the darkness rather than the light. Therefore, they reject Christ. The greatest, the greatest news I could ever announce to you, summarized in one verse, would be the one that you all know from heart. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There is no greater news than that, that you are that loved by God that he would send his only begotten son to come to this earth, to die on Calvary's cross in your place and in my place. There's no greater news than that. John 3.16. The worst news that I think you can find is three verses later in John 3.19. You see, John 3, 19 says this, that Jesus the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Here's the sad reality. For many, Jesus is the rejected one. And he is rejected because People enjoy living their lives according to their own rules and in their own ways and in their own wickedness and in their own darkness. And they do not let Jesus in who is the light of the world. He knocks, but they reject him. Jesus is the rejected one. But notice that we also see here in this passage, the sixth and the final point that I want you to see is that for those who do not reject him, but those who will receive him, Jesus is the saving one. He is the saving one. Listen to the good news of verse 12 once more. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. What does it mean to receive Jesus? Well, it means to accept. It means to to grasp hold of. It means to, to take hold of him. The last part of this verse makes it even more clear. To receive Jesus is to believe in him. It means to believe that he is who he claimed to be and who the testimony of the scriptures say that he is. It means to to believe that he did all that the word of God declares about him. To receive Jesus and to believe in him means to say yes to him. It means to engage our total being so that we put our trust completely in Christ as an act of our will. And it means to give the rightful place to the eternal and the revealed and the promised and the glorious one. It means to make him Lord over your entire life. And here's the wonderful good news that this text promises us. To those who will do that, to those who will receive and believe and say yes to the Lordship Over their lives, Jesus gives them the right to be called the children of God. Don't miss this. John doesn't doesn't say that we become members of God's society. Although think about just how wonderful it would be to be part of a society that was headed up by God. I mean, my mind can't comprehend that. He doesn't even say that we're just going to become God's associates. So how awesome would it be to be considered to be part of, you know, God's organization? He doesn't even say that we become 
God's friends. Though, can you think of something that could be better than to be called a friend of God? No, the promise in this verse is greater than any of those things. John says that if we will receive and believe in Jesus, we will become the children of God. Children. Folks, that's intimacy. That's a relationship that that you're part of the family. That's the relationship that gives you the boldness to be able to walk right into the very throne room of God because you are a joint heir. I want you to know there have been plenty of times when I've shared a conversation with someone, I've been stopped by someone. Lots of times it takes place here in the foyer, and if it's taken place with you before or if it happens later, you just need to go ahead and know this. Somebody's having an important conversation with me and it's about important stuff and all that's fine and dandy. But one of my children comes up and puts their arm around me. You can expect this from me that I'm going to put my arm around them back and I'm going to tell them I love them. Because I do. Because they're my children. And we have that relationship. It's flesh and blood. They are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. They they belong to me because God gave them to me. Now, just think about that relationship for a second that many of you parents have with your children and that you children have with your parents. And think about the God of heaven saying to you, you are my child. I have this closeness with you that transcends all these other relationships. That's what's promised to those who will by faith come to Christ and receive him. And I want you to know, this verse 13 makes clear, salvation does not come as a result of being born into a certain family, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. The new birth is not the result of any racial or ethnic heritage. It doesn't come as a result of personal desire. It doesn't come as a result of some man-made system. It is the result of God accomplishing for the sinner what the sinner cannot accomplish for themselves. The new birth is a divine work accomplished by the condescension of Christ who came to this earth to be born in Bethlehem's manger so that he could die on Calvary's cross, so that he could be raised again from the garden's tomb, so that he could ascend to heaven's throne. And he did all of that so that sinners like you and me could place our faith in him and repent of our sins and be saved from the penalty of those sins and be called the sons and the daughters of God. That... That, my friends, is the amazingly good news of the condescension of Christ at Christmas that John tells us about here. And it leads me to my sermon in a sentence, which I'm just going to tell you is just woefully inadequate, but it's the best that I could do. So here it is. The incredible thing about the condescension of Christ at Christmas is that God took on human flesh to die on Calvary's cross because we mattered. I mentioned there are two errors that can immediately show up whenever the gospel is proclaimed and whenever the condescension of God is discussed. And one is that it is dismissed as being unbelievable and too impossible to be true. But listen, 
it is true. It is true. Though our fallen natures make us prone to unbelief, and though our sin makes us prone to hide from the light, and though the hurt that we carry with us that came as a result of someone else who also has fallen, who hurt us and, and caused us to, 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 to recoil back from them, though that causes us to be skeptical, I want you to know it is still nevertheless true that there is a God who created you and a God that knows you by name. In fact, he knows everything about you. The Bible says he even knows the hair on your head. I'm making it easier for him. (laughs) He knew you before you were born. He knows every thought that comes into your mind. He knows the words you will speak before they are even formed on your lips. Is that thought astounding? Is it amazing? Is it incredible? Yes, it is all of those things. But I want you to know it is not the most incredible thing. To be sure, it is incredible to believe that there is a God who exists. It is even more incredible to believe that that God came to earth and that he took on flesh and became a man. And it is even more incredible still to consider that as a man, he went willingly to Calvary's cross to bear the guilt and the shame and the punishment that we deserve because of our sin. And I want you to know it is that that defeats the reasoning behind the second error. That you're too small. That you're too insignificant to matter to God. That that you're too damaged and that you're too marred for God to care about you or desire a relationship with you. G.K. Chesterton once wrote that the hardest thing in theology to believe is that you and I matter to God. But I want you to know That is absolutely true. It is foundational to the Christian faith and the condescension of Christ at Christmas and ultimately at Calvary proves that to us. I'm going to close this morning by reading what is for me my favorite passage of Scripture and I wish I could tell you that it's the entire Bible is my favorite passage of Scripture and it is. But One of these days, I'm going to go back and I'm going to pull and try to figure out exactly how many times I have quoted from this passage in my ministry. And I preached from it not very long ago. But if you want to talk about the condescension of Christ at Christmas and at Calvary and then his ascension back, how can you not mention Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11? And I'm going to close with this. Paul writes, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the very form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. There's your condescension. Taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me ask you, is your faith in Christ? Have you received him? 
Have you trusted in Him to be your Savior and your Lord? Are you living your life for Him in obedience to Him? It is my prayer this morning that you will honestly ponder those questions and search your own heart and that your answer will be yes. And if it is not, that you will humble yourself before God. And you will trust in him and believe upon him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your love for us. Demonstrated in the fact that you sent your son to die in our place. That his righteousness is imputed to us by faith. It's not anything that we earned. It's not anything that we merited, but it was a free gift of your grace to us. If there's one in this room that finds that too incredible to believe, I pray that your spirit would just continue to work, move in their heart. Maybe they think about some of the things that they've done and the places they've been and they just can't imagine that there's any grace left and any mercy left but I pray that you would remind them of the cross and all that you suffered for them if there's one that has been too cold and too distant and just unbelieving I pray that they would see that Jesus Christ is their only hope and their only answer that you break down those cold hard walls there's one here that's entertaining sin in their lives living apart from you and disregarding the things that they know that you would have them to do in the way that you'd have them to live give them a fresh vision once again of the condescension of Christ at Christmas but also at Calvary help them to see them, see you Father, all we know to do is to come before you. All I know to do is to come before you on behalf of these people and ask for your spirit to bring conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment to come and that you would accomplish in their hearts exactly what you desire and what you're accomplishing in mine, conforming us into the image of your son. It is my prayer and I pray it in the name of Jesus and for his sake and for his glory alone. Amen.